Empower Radio presents the Dr. Julie Show, all things connected. Break through the illusion of separation, explore the infinite field of possibility, and make connections that inspire. Now, here's your host, Dr. Julie Crawl. Hello and welcome everyone. You're listening to the Dr. Julie Show, all things connected. Each week we gather right here to break through that illusion of separation. And I trust something you hear in this next hour may just shift your perception of politics and current events in our world and even more than that. So imagine with me for a second, what does it mean to develop a sacred worldview? And what does that feel like when I use those words and put these words together? Sacred America. Interesting, huh? Last weekend, I had a very brief, and I say brief, conversation about politics with an extended family member. A, somebody was showing us a, a sketch, comedy sketch about politics, and I don't even need to say more. And I kind of chuckled, and we started a brief conversation, but it got short with that terminal, perennial phrase, we don't talk about politics and religion. And I went to bed that night with so many questions on my mind. What could matter more in today's world? Can we talk about common values and shared purpose? And what if we could value all political perspectives? Imagine that, seeing each as valuable yet incomplete contributions toward the emerging whole. Our guest today is inspiring a creative, innovative conversation about politics and so many solutions. So I invite you to take a few deep breaths, bring your awareness into this moment, open your mind, connect with your heart, and settle into your essential self as I introduce our guest Stephen Dynan, a noted social entrepreneur and visionary political strategist, is the founder and CEO of The Shift Network, a leading global provider of online transformational courses and trainings. He was previously a senior staffer for both the Institute of Noetic Sciences and the Esalon Institute. At IONS, he was the driving force behind the Shift in Action program. And at Esalon, he directed and helped to create the Center for Theory and Research, a think tank for scholars, researchers, and teachers to explore human potential frontiers. Stephen is the author of Sacred America, Sacred World, Fulfilling Our Mission in Service to All, and Radical Spirit, Spiritual Writings from the Voices of Tomorrow. He's a graduate of Stanford University and holds a master's in East-West Psychology from the California Institute of Integral Studies. Stephen is also a member of the prestigious Transformational Leadership Council and Evolutionary Leaders Group. He resides in the San Francisco Bay Area with his family, and I'm delighted to reconnect with you. So, Stephen, welcome, welcome to our show. What a pleasure to be here, and an amazing introduction. You said you distilled so much of my message down better than I have. <laughs> oh, well, I'm like really looking forward to this. I actually, you know, didn't even think about my upcoming show being you, and over the weekend, of course, things are bubbling up, I think, all over our country right now, but um, what an engaging, interesting whole dynamic when, you know, we have these 
<laughs> we have this old myth that we can't talk about politics and religion. So I'm looking forward to talking about politics and religion with you on the show. But first, Stephen, I have a tradition. I love to set our conversation in a bigger meme here. And so I want to ask you, what does all things connected mean to you? Well, what all things connected means to me is that on a very fundamental level that we are one, that we are sourced from the same energy of the universe, the same divine connection, if you're spiritually oriented, that we're all interconnected in a very deep way on a biological level, and even on the level of matter moving in and through our bodies. I believe that uh, there's something like a 90% chance that any in-breath we take was uh, it contains a molecule from the out-breath of George Washington's last breath, or, you know, they have interesting statistics like that. So we constantly are circulating molecules and cells and, and energy and new possibilities. So our sense of being there these separate islands of self is really a bit of an illusion. And so mystics really remind us of that on a spiritual level. And I think it makes it a very profound difference to how we engage our spiritual life and, we'll, as we'll talk about today, really our political life as well. Mm. Thank you, Stephen. You know, I cannot think of anything more important to be talking about in today's world. And and even, you know, as I went to bed over the weekend with all these questions on my mind, I was thinking about, um, you know, like I mentioned, these, you know, common values and shared purpose. And what, if, if we can't talk about that, we have no religion and we have no politics if we really can't come together and talk about it. So help us understand, where did this inspiration for your book come from? Hmm. Well, it's like so many things in my life. It really came as sort of a download and uh, inner guidance that said, this is something I need to do. So it just came in Sacred America uh, first as the title eventually expanded to Sacred World. And I was like, oh, how curious. That's sort of a bit of a provocative title in certain ways, since we're so used to separating the spiritual and the political into two domains. When you bring them together, people either are afraid that it's, a, it's just a kind of a giant inflationary, you know, chest-thumping, uh, America's so great book, or that it's, it's proselytizing for a particular religion. But the truth is, what we really need to relate to America at, in a sacred way. And by sacred way, I don't mean that we're all full of ourselves, but simply that we relate with more love, with more respect, with more honor, with a real sense of reverence and taking responsibility for the evolution of the whole. We have, we've been entrusted with this precious gift for humanity, which is a country that has pioneered so many different things and wields so much power right now. And so for us to really truly be spiritual beings means taking seriously that we have a responsibility and, um, and duty really to relate to our country in a deeper way. So often in politics, we can either get into a patriotism that simply is uh, trumpets how great we are, or we can we can just critique where we are and and get disillusioned. Rather than I think the best strategy is to love our country deeply and to realize that we still we have far more within us that we are only 240 years old that we're capable of accomplishing far more than we have in terms of demonstrating liberty, equality, justice for all innovation, really solving the basic challenges of humankind, we can, we, can pa- we can pave the way to a planet that we can be proud of, and we can demonstrate that in our own borders. So we, yes, mm. we have our challenges and problems, but we, we're, uh, we have a, a, a great history of being able to surmount those and create something truly uh, beautiful. 
I really appreciate this approach. I really, it's, to me, there's so much I want to talk about. I'm like, oh, gosh, uh, let's talk about how it was all formed, and let's talk about all the different facets. <laughs> let's talk about where we're going. And you've done a really great job in this book, Stephen, of really helping us look at how we were founded, where we've been, how we've maybe got so, I shouldn't say maybe, I was going to say get off track and polarized, but you, you talk about that. And then you show us ways for us to come back in and bring this into a trajectory that's only greater for our whole world. I, I really, let's start with the sacred purpose, because you talk about America and the ideals and that American dream, but you, you talk about it in such a global voice that we can, again, see ourselves in a bigger picture that makes more sense. And it takes it out of mm. that grandiose kind of place that we were talking mm. about with the narcissism that we're great. But let's talk about that. What is America's sacred purpose? Well, the way I see it is to demonstrate what is possible on this planet in terms of a really divinely inspired and aligned society that we're living from our highest principles and creating a society that works for all. And we can also see it in in our motto, which is e pluribus unum, out of many, one. And that's more than a statement about 13 colonies coming together into one nation. It's really a more metaphysical statement that our purpose also lies in leading us towards greater wholes and greater oneness and more unity. You can also see that in the Constitution, where there is a clear recognition that we are here to create a more perfect union. And given the nature of your show, I think it's important to point out that there's no accident they chose union instead of nation, because it's actually broader and deeper than just creating a country. It's actually a mission to lead towards larger spiritual wholes. So when when America is is on task and, and doing well. We blend our unity and diversity. We, we hold both of those poles in a beautiful way. We're sufficiently unified that we can share the common ground, that we can respect each other, that we can treat each other with dignity, we can love each other. And the diversity is the great engine of creativity. It's like when we form novel combinations of ideas and businesses and cultures and religions, that's, when, that's why we're so successful because we are a global melting pot to a degree that no other country really rivals that ability to be a global melting pot. Pot, and that that create that's our engine. But we have, but in times like right today, it's like the change has started to accelerate in a really quick, very fast way now. And so there's often a reaction back against that. We want to retreat back into old identities and tribal tribal identifications, red nation versus blue nation versus, you know, 99% versus the 1% and, you know, Christians versus Muslims. And all of our old identities become more attractive when we're scared of what's emergent. What's emergent is truly a global worldview. It's a, and it's not, it's not a global worldview where America is the dominant empire. I, I really see us as um, growing into a kind of spiritual leadership in the world where we're holding the torch of possibility of what is a truly enlightened and just society look like. And we're modeling that and we're helping to spread that and inspire that around the world. So, you know, we're still outgrowing some of our grandiosity and nation state triumphalism, you know, where we're like, we're like, we're the greatest country in the world. And, and there's, there's truth in that. We want to honor that, but we also can be so much greater tomorrow. It requires, it requires this kind of deeper heartfelt relationship. You know, when, when we, if we're raising children, we don't do them a service by not loving them. We have to love them as they grow up to the next level. And 
America, I believe, is just growing up to our next level of maturity, a kind of mature, seasoned, wise adulthood on the global stage. And we're still got a lot of the adolescent kind of braggadocio in us, and we're, we're but we're outgrowing it, and we're going to we're going to be, uh, I believe, really paving the way for planetary peace, for sustainability, for human rights for all, for opportunity for all. And that when we're truly in service to that, going beyond just our self-interest, that's when people really trust us. And that's when we have a secure country. That's when we really are um, feel loved and welcomed, and we can and we can and we can really thrive. Yes, yes, I I love how you put this into the perspective of evolving our consciousness as well, the evolution of consciousness. And and when I hear you talking, America's growing up. We're really quite literally breaking down so many forms and structures that don't serve that next level. I said to someone over the weekend, I said, would you go out and do your job like you went to school in fifth grade? Would you Would you do it the same way? And, and it, it's kind of like a, a real good visual for us to think about us growing up and needing new yeah. social forms, new politics, new, a lot of new things. So from your perspective, Stephen, and I appreciate you bringing in this fear too, because we're watching all of these structures break down. We're watching all this new emergent good breakthroughs, social forms, new ways of being and, and relating on the planet coming through, but they're not all here yet. It's scary and, and it's mm-hmm. fragile and we don't know where to step. So what would, be, what would be your prescription for listeners here to kind of relax into what we're seeing on this? It really, it's playing out on a global stage, our American politics. What's your What's your prescription? What would help them to relax and kind of see the underpinnings of what's emerging here? Hmm. Well, I think it's really important for us to spend a certain amount of time just exposing ourselves to what is inspiring and emergent, because that's part of why I'm so confident and so optimistic in general, is I just get exposed day in and day out to some of the really innovative stuff going on around the world. And we're accustomed, and I think it's important that we do pay attention to our national media, but they, they do tend to lead with what bleeds, what is tragic, what is uh, emotionally traumatizing sometimes. And so we end up with a very skewed picture of what is actually happening in the country because, you know, I've been traveling around. I mean, this summer has been very intense on a lot of different levels. I was just at the Republican National Convention, and you hear much more about the red meat uh, on stage and all the kind of the fraction, fractiousness. And there was a beautiful idea where, actually, I think you know her, Sister Judy Colley, uh, and, was in, and the Sisters of St. Joseph, particularly uh, Sister Rita was really the lead on this at, at Trizulio. They came up with the idea to circle the city with love before the RNC. And so they, they built the idea, and week after week, more and more people, more and more churches, more and more communities. At the end of the day, there were 4,000 people who created a giant circle across the Hope Memorial Bridge and created this amazing 30 minutes of just loving meditation, uh, which welcomed in the police officers who were feeling traumatized from recent violence and, and scared about what was upcoming. And, you know, and so it was interesting, but by the end of the week, they had said, that the, or the Washington Post wrote that we had been expecting a riot and we got a block party. And, uh, mm-hmm. and I think that was, it was not by accident. I think there's enough 
energy of love and unification in the air that some of the, the, the violence and the polarization dissipated enough. Not like it wasn't there. There weren't. There were still like some edgy moments. But instead of a thousand arrests a day, there were five arrests a day, and there were people on the street who had shirts that said "Love on Legs" and holding signs up, free hugs, and they were just hugging people all day long. And so, this 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 impulse towards the reunification is happening. People are doing innovative stuff, you know, and whether it's creating grassroots community centers to new forms of schools to innovative um, kinds of sustainable agriculture. It's just that we have to expose ourselves to enough of what's going on that we are heartened by that. And we realize, yes, we have the solutions. They're in motion. We just need to keep nurturing them and amplifying them. And on the other side, there's, there's sort of these two parallel tracks. One is the nurturing of the new, and then there's the midwifing of the old. And that, there's a, there is a dying that's going on, and there is a shift. And, and that, that can be hard for people. I'm now at the Democratic National Convention, and this is showing up particularly with the folks who were big supporters of the of Bernie's campaign, the whole Bert, Bernie or bus contingent. Now, you know, I, I was a supporter of Bernie in the beginning, and, and I thought he was good news in the race, but people got so wedded to this emergent hope and possibility that they have had trouble getting on board with this new reality. And so there's so the new reality is that he's not going to be the nominee, and that he is himself has urged his supporters to to back Hillary and many and most of the, a lot of them seem to be ignoring it and just you know carrying the Bernie or bus they're still in a kind of denial moment and so there's so when we have big transition points there's a certain number of people left or right that are going to they're going to tighten up and not embrace whatever it is we're we're moving into and so we have to be c- compassionate and patient and empathetic and really love the pe- help love people through whatever transition is pending and so I think that's true in our larger culture as well, is that as we hit these crisis points and some of the flare-ups that happen, then we have to be willing to, be, to, be, to lovingly help people navigate that in a way that is constructive. So, uh, you know, so that's part of why I'm, I'm a big advocate for what I call political cross-training. Instead of just being polarized and making our pronouncements and having our positions, is to really build bridges in on many different places and in many different ways with people across the political spectrum, and that part of that enriches us because we learn new things, we we take on new value systems, we learn to see the world with different eyes, and we also are able to meet people in their humanity and dignity and divinity, even if they have very different political pers- perspectives. And that's really, I think it's, a, it's an important thing. We've embraced diversity on a lot of other fronts, but we haven't embraced diversity politically in the same way so that we see that we're actually enriched by having a multiplicity of perspectives and a multiplicity of ideas. And instead of feeling threatened by that, to really hold it as part of the source of our, our current and future, future greatness. So, so that's... Um, so I, I was tradi- I've traditionally been more of a progressive Democrat, but I've built a lot of bridges recently with Republicans and Republican leaders who are eager to find common ground solutions. I spoke at a purple tent in Cleveland, which is seeking the common ground between left and right. So purple equals the marriage of red and blue. And it's a very unitive color, often associated with more spiritual things as well. So they had a tent where I was on a Handle, for instance, with Grover Norquist, and we're ideologically quite different, but we we're trying to see if we can find some common ground and explore how to and just relate in a different way rather than the, the uh, partisan food fight that's been going on. 
And it doesn't happen just at a leadership level. It can really happen at a grassroots level. It's how do we engage a conversation with our spouse or our neighbors or people in the business business world. And it takes a certain amount of curiosity, a certain amount of willingness to take seriously somebody else's values and perspective, and sometimes be able to speak in a language that they can hear better than coming out of our own um, our own value system and our own worldview. That's part of operating with sacred respect to the other. And when we do that, I think our democracy becomes much more creative and generative versus combative, which it is now. Yeah. Stephen, I, I, after we take our break, I really want to go into um, how you've really articulated a transpartisan approach. And I, I love that word. I love the idea, the whole concept. I'm like so far behind you. It's just, I'm like cheering you on here. But before we do that, and we have a few minutes before break here, I'd love to hear your perspective on historically, why have we gotten so polarized? Let's, let's really diagnose this problem. And then after the break, we can go into the solutions and the healing and the antidote for this. Yeah. Well, I think that, you know, even our, the, the founding fathers of our country warned against a heavy polarization into po- political parties because there's something intrinsic in a political party that it, it leads you to put interests, interests of the party before the good of the whole because the party has its own survival needs and needs to build that aren't identical with the larger, uh, larger population. So there's a certain risk factor just in developing parties at all, even though they seem to be intrinsic to most democracies. Um, however, in the United States, we've also gotten in this situation where we have uh, gotten more and more fragmented in our media. And so in recent years, more, more and more people are only getting their media from one primary perspective. It could be Fox News, it could be MSNBC, get everything on Huffington Post or the Drudge Report, whatever it is that people kind of slot in. And we tend to take in information that reinforces our natural predispositions. But the, the shadow side of that is it can make us more and more blind and more and more judgmental of other per- perceptions. And we're more and more ghettoized in our, in our sort of separate tribes. And that makes it very difficult sometimes to have a productive conversation because people are having different, getting different facts, they have different perspectives. And a lot of the, so between the parties trying to advance their, their work and between media uh, also competing for, for market share, there's a tendency to have to lead with things that are more sensational. So those two factors together have had a huge impact. So I don't think either of those are going to be reversed very easily in the near future. So the pathway out has to be that we take on a conscious practice as citizens of cross-training, of bridge building. So I, I, for instance, I like to read some articles from the right every day, even though I'm primarily um, primarily progressive. And part of that, it, it deepens my thinking. It helps me understand where others are coming from. So that's some of our some of what we do reading wise. As a, as a more extreme example, if you really want to take on a practice, I, I did the same with Sarah Palin in 2008, who really got under my skin. And I read both of her books until I could really feel the place where I could respect and honor different aspects of who she was. And then I wrote an article about it, Huffington Post, called "Dissolving the Palin Prejudice." So that's the advanced practice, but we can at least start with <laughs> we can at least start <laughs> with uh, what we read and how we talk with people, so that there's uh, a depth of curiosity and an openness to explore where the roots of somebody's worldview and their experiences are coming from and how that's informing the, the kind of political perspective that they're championing. Yes, yes, yes. Well, you do talk. You put, um, really, you create this nice way of looking at things that each each party 
has gifts for the whole, and it, and yet it's incomplete. So I can't wait to talk about this after the break. Before we break, though, right now, I want to make sure our listeners know how to find you. I think there's three different websites that we can give them. Yeah. How do you want listeners book, to find you? The easiest thing, the book is just sacredamerica.net. That way, if you buy the book through there, then you can get signed up and get some extra bonuses like this whole series of the American Evolution uh, dialogues, which are really exciting and juicy. So if we can, if you do it there, then you get that. And then uh, the Shift Network is is the kind of main company site that keeps you connected to all the good work that we're doing. Excellent. So it's shiftnetwork.com or org. Is it dot the, org? The shift the the shiftnetwork.com. The shiftnetwork.com and sacredamerica.net. You said correct. Yes. All righty. Okay. We are going to take a quick break. We are talking with Stephen Dynan, author of Sacred America, Sacred World. And after the break, you're going to hear so much more about potential solutions and a world that works for all. We'll be right back. Sassy. Sassy. This week's episode, Danger at the Old Well. Last one to the old well's a rotten egg. Ha ha, I win. Whoa! Ah! Sassy! Johnny fell down the well. I'm wet. What, Sassy? You know where Mr. Gunderson keeps his rope? Go get it, girl. What? You'd rather use his time to set people straight about shelter pet adoption? I'm cold. People shouldn't be afraid to adopt from a shelter? Because shelter pets are screened for sound health and temperament? I'm wet and cold! Sassy, what about Johnny? (laughs) What? Let Johnny sit in the well until he learns to be more self-reliant? Sassy! What'd he say? Sassy is brought to you by the Ad Council and the shelterpetproject.org. Remember, adopt! Have you ever lost a cat? And have you ever wanted to get your cat back after you lost it? Hi there, I'm Andrew Hoffman. I went on this website called inventnow.org. Then I decided to make an invention of my own. It's called the Lost Cat Magnet Invention. So you can get your cat back after you lost it. Just turn it on and lost cats stick to it. That's a good cat. If your cat was hiding up in a tree, it won't be up a tree anymore. It will be stuck to the lost cat magnet. And sometimes they fly toward you in the air. Just listen to one satisfied cat. (coughs) See, that's proof. You should go to the inventnow.org website too. But just remember one thing. Don't do a lost cat magnet. Anything's possible. Keep thinking. Get started on your own inventions or just play some games at inventnow.org. Brought to you by the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office, the National Inventors Hall of Fame Foundation, and the Ad Council. Come to the forest. It's a place not so far away. A place where you don't have to mow the lawn or babysit. I saw lizards and squirrels and bugs. Ladybugs, caterpillars. It's really cool, actually. A place where you don't have to make time for free time. Lots and lots of kinds of species here. Out here, you may even meet the mysterious creature known as the other you. The enchanted you. It's magic what flowers do. The adventurous you. My favorite tree, yes, is 
that one? The free to be me, you. <laughs> Ask your parents to take you to this not so far away place. Come to the forest, where the other you lives. But first, stop by discovertheforest.org. A public service announcement brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service and the Ad Council. Now, back to the Dr. Julie Show, all things connected on Empower Radio. Hey, welcome back. If you're inspired by our conversation today, I invite you to share it with others and maybe just listen to it again yourself. You can do that by visiting our website at thedrjulieshow.com. Again, that's thedrjulieshow.com, where you'll find all the archive links as well as a listing of upcoming guests. Also, Stay connected all week on our Facebook page, All Things Connected with Dr. Julie, where we continue the conversation. We love to hear from you. We're visiting today with Stephen Dynan, author of Sacred America, Sacred World. And you can find Stephen at sacredamerica.net. Go visit there. I encourage you to do it. The book is incredible. You can also find Stephen at theshiftnetwork.com. Okay, Stephen, we talked a lot about what's going on in the world. <laughs> I... I I have so much, I don't even know where to start again here, but I think it's really important for us to kind of ground in this notion of transpartisanship and how Mm -hmm. that could potentially help dissolve our differences, move us towards center. How can we actually work together, you know, united for the people, by the people? So let's let's start there. What is transpartisanship? Well, it's a movement that's been created by Quite a number of people besides me. I'm not even one of the early figures in it, but I feel that it's it's one of the most important currents now. Which is, it's really a recognition that we have a higher identity that and a, and a higher mission than simply our partisan our partisan ones, and that, that, that to ground ourselves in that and to focus on that, even while we can we can sometimes have very different very different perspectives on what we need to do. So you can be a transpartisan progressive or a transpartisan Republican or transpartisan green or transpartisan libertarian or Democrat, whatever it is, you can still be, have your identity one foot in the other identity, but you have the other foot in something that's uh, larger, that's more interconnected. It's, it's more um, of the whole. And so you can put, you can, for some people that's just being an American. Some people, it might be a global citizen. Some people might feel that that larger whole is, uh, really almost a, a spiritual ground as well. I'm also playing with the idea on my book tour of creating an American evolution rather than a revolution, because the revolutionary fire tends to create more polarization and opposition rather and often tends to be a bit too righteous and not listen uh, to the right pacing. And so I, I, might, I make the case that we need an American evolution now, and really everybody's part of the team. So we need to evolve our country to the next level rather than revolve, which means to actually circle on the same level, uh, so we need to evolve to a next level, so we can each make a contribution to that, so that we're, we have a, a higher purpose that unites us, and that is um, that doesn't doesn't fo- focus all of our atten- energy on being on separate teams. So, in a way, that uh, transpartisanship is to, is to really say we're all on the same team ultimately, and that we just have different perspectives or strategies for how to go about achieving the goal of creating a better country. I like also how you mentioned that each party has really valuable gifts to give to the whole. And when we put them together, we get a, a bigger picture of that wholeness. That's such a key insight. You know, I've, I've been started been saying it like the way that the way I've been saying it recently is that we're like 
left and right are like the two wings of the American eagle. You need both to fly. And there's a way in which the left values tend to uh, be sourced more from the feminine, if you will. There's more of an inclusion and uplifting of those who've been marginalized, a sense of concern to, uh, to, to really to be caring, uh, to create a caring society. The right tends to be more sourced in the masculine in certain ways, so it tends to be more focused on strength and defense and self-responsibility and discipline. But both are actually really helpful and required. So it, we might tilt one way or the other, and we have our natural predisposition. But to, to have a healthy family, it's good to have masculine and feminine balance. And to have a healthy culture, it's also good to have masculine and feminine balance. And in a healthy relationship, rather than a, a shouting match, we, we want to see mom and dad get along. <laughs> so, so when we see mom and dad just always yelling at each other, as we tend to do with the with Republicans and Democrats, it actually doesn't template a healthy culture for us. And I, I think that we do need to bring more of the feminine into our, our political sphere, so there is more of a of a collaborative spirit about it, and to really honor that these these different political orientations have a complementarity. I'll give an example of how it gets really specific. Um, you know, early on, I was very very progressive, uh, somewhat radical. My first book was Radical Spirit, and uh, I definitely liked the kind of edgy, change-oriented. I often saw conservatives as the enemy who were holding us back. And meanwhile, I wasn't, uh, the first time I tried to launch the Shift Network, I was not able to get it off the ground. And I had some resentment about all these you know, people who had all the money and you know, were doing well, and all these conservatives who had big businesses. And, and, uh, and then I realized at a certain point, that wasn't really serving anything. It's like, why don't I just apprentice with the conservatives. And so I joked that I had to integrate my inner Republican, which meant integrating a little more, more conservative decisions, more fiscal discipline, not always betting the farm on everything about some uh, toughening up physically sometimes, and also just being able to navigate different storms. So, so it, it became a nice complementarity to the, the more sensitive, sensitive and open sides that I developed really in the consciousness movement. But then my father-in-law in particular was a very rock-ribbed Republican who, uh, who, whose goal when I asked him to mentor me was to toughen me up. So when, when, and that actually served. It really helped. He, he challenged me to do three months of mixed martial arts. Uh, and actually, I did a year and a half, which is essentially street fighting. So I had to, I had to prove myself with some boxing and grappling and Muay Thai to, to, for him to want to mentor me. But at the end, end of the day, was I felt like I took in that some of the strength and the dis- discipline and the fortitude that was more uh, part of the value system on the right. And that made me a better, better leader and ultimately uh, able to get uh, a business off the ground. So I think sometimes it's like we, we start to see the, the world as like, oh, these values are good and these are, these are bad or wrong. But actually, in actuality, we need to be full spectrum beings who have access to a full spectrum of capacities. And right and left value systems tend to emphasize one or the other rather than than the full spectrum. Mm. What a good recipe. What a good, like, when I hear you talking about that, and thank you for sharing your personal story there, I, I remember so many conversations with people who really have, they don't even want to create in any of the old forms that are there. And we're sitting here talking about the Republicans that are grounding us in some very valuable things and not allowing us to change too fast. And yet when we can really embrace 
both sides of this Mm -hmm. partisan, we really do become more balanced and healthy and we can move in more sustainable steps, it Mm -hmm. seems like. Yeah, there was a. I used to work with a Republican who was uh, joke with me that he said, you know, pro- progressives are always trying to change things, and my job is to slow them down. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and and there was a way in which I think if you look at it as a spiritual principle, is that the, the preservation of what's worked is very important for the evolution of any system. And so when you have values and traditions and morals and businesses and societal structures and constitution rules, a lot of those things in a way, they were the leading edge of of creation years ago, and we can forget how valuable they are, but it's like the preservation of those, the sanctity of those is actually really important for our society. And so uh, oftentimes conservatives are are better preservers and champions of what what we've already created that's good and that we need to, and then sometimes the progressives tend to focus more on what we need to do next. And in, often in ways that are sometimes disrespectful or undermining of the old as well. So instead, it's more like, okay, we, need to, we do need to change and evolve, but we need to also respect and preserve the best of what we've done as well. Mm. Well, thank you for that. I, I have a friend who also, I, you mentioned instead of revolutionize, we evolutionize our political realm here and i have a friend who says let's we evolution it you know let's move toward the we here so what do you what can we say to listeners steven there are so many people out there saying you know the the whole thing is broken the whole thing is rigged i don't want anything to do with it i'm not going to get out and vote it doesn't matter if i vote anyway and we're really calling on everyone to step forward and be a part of this evolutionary change yeah. in America. So w- what do you say to those listeners say, it's not going to matter anyway, and why should I get out and vote? I don't want anything to do with it. Well, you know, I'm going to say something that I haven't said before, just that occurred to me, is it's sort of like, you know, abdicating being a parent. It's like being a deadbeat dad who doesn't show up for the kids. It's like we, you know, we're incarnated in this country. We're citizens of this country. We've, we have experienced its blessings and its beauty in many different levels. So for us to completely step out of the process and abdicate decision-making and the trajectory for our future to people who may not have as conscious a view of how to do that and who might have sometimes, you know, really taking advantage of that situation, that's a profound lack of responsibility for what we've been entrusted with. And it's, there's no way to be in spiritual integrity when we absolve ourselves of responsibility for that which we've been given. It's like, it's like abandoning a child. So do we want to abandon the child of America as it grows into adulthood? Or do we want to say, you know what? Yes, there are challenges. Yes, there are, ch- are problems. But I'm going to be in there and shift it. I mean, I'm spreading a very uplifting message. It's finding resonance on the left and right. I've talked on conservative radio stations and progressive on different TV and all over, you know, all over the country. And people really respond to it. And I'm just one person. You know, any, any one of us can do that. So it's really... Um, it's really a matter of being a voice to uplift the dialogue, to be a healer in the dialogue, to help people get past the cynicism. We have to get past our own, but we have to actually connect with that part of our heart that does really love our country, that does appreciate what makes us new, makes us magical in different ways, as uh, our ability to, to create this engine of innovation that is the American culture. And uh, so, you know, to, to really reconnect with that place, Feel some of the pain and disappointment, yes, so that's fine to let that pass through your system, but there's something deeper. There's something, a, a, a love relationship with our country 
that really calls us into wanting to help it evolve. And I, and I would just finally just, I would encourage people to take small actions because part of what happens is that we, we get a lot of, of the negativity in the press and then we can get depressed by that and then we want to wall off from it. But when you take positive actions, even small ones, it builds, it builds capacity, it builds power, it builds momentum. So if we're, you know, if we're, like for instance, if we go and just voice our opinion to our local representative or senator's office or get involved in local politics or, uh, you know, make micro loans to developing world entrepreneurs or go volunteer in the jail or whatever, whatever issue it is that keeps us up at night, to take little steps each day that, that, uh, that shift that and to get engaged. There's a great organization called the Friends Committee on National, Legisl- National Legislation that we work with. It's a Quaker group, spiritually based, that is really committed to influencing our legislation in a more peaceful direction, more peaceful and um, balanced. And it works on both sides of the aisle, and it's, very, uh, it's, it's really evolutionary. So we go once a year and learn how to citizen lobby and talk to our congresspeople in a way that helps, to, helps them to do a better job. When we take these little actions, uh, whether just with our, how we how we vote, to where we buy things, to how we talk about politics, um, then we get uh, we can get more empowered and more engaged, and don't feel hopeless. And then that allows us to actually be really positive and constructive. Mm. Good, good suggestions. I I do agree that we do need this uplifting piece of the message. And there's a lot of a lot of fear. There's a lot of anxiety. There's really a lot of hopelessness because hospicing what is dying and breaking down is really heavy work sometimes. And we're doing it with compassion and love. And yet, it is a fatiguing thing. So I know you have your pulse on a lot of emerging innovative new ways of being individuals organizations groups doing amazing things and then you also offer some suggestions in your book of really great opportunities for us to evolve to a higher octave as a united citizen here so help us understand what is going on in the world what do you see that's really hopeful where do you see positive change I'll give an example of Kiva.org um, because I think it's a great it's a great innovative group. So Kiva.org was founded with the recognition that that microfinance, small loans to developing world entrepreneurs, could really lift people out of poverty. Uh, Muhammad Yunus had pioneered the model with the Grameen Bank, which lifted many of Bangladeshis, particularly women, out of poverty with very high rates of repaying loans. They were essentially unbanked people who were then able to get loans and build small businesses and get their families on their feet. Um, so they applied this. They decided to create an internet version of this. There's essentially it's a matchmaker. You get match. There's all these op- opportunities of entrepreneurs around the world who want to build a sewing business or a beauty business or or a local you know gas re- or you know car repair shop, and they don't have the capital for it. So they get you know a couple thousand dollar loans that are enough to get them off the ground, and something like 98 percent of them are repaid. You get to have the satisfaction of seeing the people you're loaning to. There's a picture and a little bit of narrative about them. And this method has really taken off. Uh, You know, there's something on the order of $100 million worth of loans that have been made to these developing world entrepreneurs. And you think about each one of those people. One woman who creates a sewing business in in, um, Mozambique, and she, she gets out of poverty, and she gets starts to have a sustainable livelihood, she raises her children to get a better education. She has, uh, she inspires her friends, 
And then she also talks about it, too. She, it creates an enormous amount of goodwill in the world. It's not just lifting people out of poverty. One of the reasons I like to make loans now to women in Islamic countries. Each time there's a terrorist incident, we can just contract into fear and self-preservation. But we, we forget that on the other side, that, that's part of what creates the problem, is the more isolated we are from the Islamic world, the, the more misunderstanding there is, and the more likely that you have more people become recruited into, into systems of violence. So, would you, so every time there's a terrorist incident, why not make uh, a, another loan to somebody in a developing world who is uh, you know, going to help create a feeling of like real goodwill towards the United States? And that's ultimately far more protective than anything we do with our military. So we have to kind of counterbalance some of the, some of the reactiveness in our culture by building bridges across divides. It might be across race divides or, or a huge divide this year. And, and that might just be as simple as sitting down if you're a white person sitting down with a black person and having a really deep heart-to-heart conversation and hearing their story about what does it mean. And you don't necessarily have to fix things right away, but to really hear somebody on a deep level can make a big difference. Mm. And, you know, uh, my, my wife, Deva, has been working in San Quentin prison in recent years, and three-quarters of the people in her group uh, are minorities, and she, she's had multiple people tell her that the connection with her is the first positive experience, like really deep positive experience they've ever had with a white person. So, and that's sobering. And you think these are, the, these, you know, these are guys who have often killed, murdered people. They've created like, you know, pretty, it's a, it's a maximum security prison. So they've usually done something substantial. And, uh, you know, it's how much of that might've been averted if they had like even a handful of positive connections with people uh, white people and didn't feel kind of, you know, so isolated or, or marginalized in their own, own um, communities. You know, that's, that's really significant. So we never underestimate the power of human connection to build a bridge and help avert something that could otherwise be really damaging. So, so Kiva is just one example. And, that, you know, that's, that's millions of people that have been directly impacted by that organization in, in probably over 100 countries and and all of those people are becoming more self-reliant. They're taking people out of poverty. Um, so anyway, you could go into any area. It's like there's initiatives that we were part of a, a whole activation this last year around bring, trying to bring fresh water to a million people in, um, in 30 days. And so we raised money for, um, I think, 500 filters that were going to go to villages and serve up to you know, 100 people each, so 5,000 people. So we, we, we raised the money for that and helped to deliver some of the filters in, in foot, the foothills of India. And when you, you see these things, you're like, wow, it's like it's six or 700,000 people, maybe it's 800,000 people now who don't have access to clean water in the world. It's not that hard of a problem to solve. It's actually, there are things that are online right now that we can simply scale up and help to multiply that result, it would result in, you know, it, would, it might only take... billion to basically solve the huge crisis around water that we're faced with as well in the world and and all of the diseases that stream from that. So whatever you look at, whether it's sustainability and the revolution in in solar is is going super quickly now. We just had the Tesla launch with with like the biggest product launch in history for an electric car. We, you know, there's, there's a lot, these things are just popping up all over if we, if we attend to them and pay attention and realize that, you know, we are making, we are turning things around. There's, there's, uh, there's amazing things happening. And yes, we've got our problems and issues and terrorism and 
and police shootings and and yes we do those are symptoms that we need to address but not to despair because of some of those symptoms yeah yeah thank you for that you know listening to you i was hearing again almost coming full circle to where we began our conversation i was i was hearing you describe a really healthy global citizen and when we talk about what does it really mean to be an America's American citizen now, I, I felt this, I'm going to add my new word. I don't know if this is in the book. I don't remember seeing it. But to be a really good American citizen, we're becoming trans citizens. <laughs> we are nice. trans like citizens. We're becoming this global citizen and and really making a difference at home as well as with the collective whole. So what does it mean to be a global citizen? It means, I mean, it doesn't have to be a touchy-feely concept. You know, I was just looking at, I was starting to read a book called The uh, The New Grand Strategy, which actually was sourced out of things out of the, under Mike Mullen, who was chairman of the Joint Chiefs Chiefs of Staff, and they were looking for a new grand strategy and really realizing that in order to truly create security in the world today, we have to focus on systemic health and resiliency and sustainability because those are the real bake breakdowns that are going to compromise the future of the United States. And so they're coming at it from a different angle. It's like, you know, what are the threats and what? Are, how do we create resiliency? But the basic concept is with more and more open borders and communication and media and finance, it's like things circulate now around the world so quickly so whatever the problems are, they metastasize across borders. We can't just, you know, put up a big wall and try to keep everything out. You know, it, does, it doesn't work anymore. And so we have to focus on systemic health. It means we have to take, we have to focus on what is going to help the whole world thrive, not just short-term us, because we can plant the seeds for our own demise if we're, if we're just focusing only on ourselves. And so global citizenship is saying the health of the whole is important and that we need to balance the health of the individual, the health of our communities, the health of our nation, the health of the world. And when all of those things are really get sufficient attention, then we actually have a healthy system on a planetary scale. And, and then we can, you know, that, that creates the foundation for us really thriving and continuing to evolve into higher stages of development. Mm. Thank you. Thank you for that, Stephen. You know, I'm as I listen to you, I feel so much hopeful than last week. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm just hearing like your your enthusiasm, number one, and the wisdom that's just percolating through the whole concept of us really adopting Sacred America, Sacred World as as a blueprint, a template for us to move forward as as one you know, as a united mm-hmm. people here. So thank you for that. I really appreciate you, you know, really bringing clarity to this and, and how ironic with the timing, huh? Well, not just ironic. I mean, I had a lot on my plate last year. I got the download. Okay, I got to get it out in 2016. And I didn't know who the candidates were going to be or anything, but I just got the sense this is a, this is a uh, all-hands-on-deck moment because for whatever reason, this pull this political season is, is uh, heating it up and it is, uh, you know, a lot of the forces that could pull us back down are operative right now. And there's a lot of pain and there's a lot of old wounds that are surfacing and old resentments. And so I think everybody who's committed to a conscious path has to say, you know what, how can I help evolve this? How can I help heal this? How can I help be a bridge builder? How, how do I help, 
Help us, yes, choose wisely, choose our future wisely, and and I, I you know, I honor everybody has a different vision of that, but but to really focus on how do we choose a fo- a future that is wise, that is whole, that is loving, and that is that is united, and that is paramount. So even as things start to pull us apart, that we really put that in the foreground. Mm, thank you. So, Stephen, we have four minutes left, and I know you are at the Democratic National Convention. Um, some amazing speeches last night. You're you're watching the fascinating dynamics between the Republican National Convention and national the Democratic National Convention. I'm just curious in the the next three minutes or so that we have left, what one message, what what is your burning desire to share with America that you really want them to hear? What's that one thing left unsaid? Hmm. Just that it's our sacred responsibility to help evolve our country and to and to do the inner work required to let go of our our bitterness, our, our disappointments, and to also really look at how people that you might have a negative opinion of, how to go beyond that and to find the divinity, the beauty, the respect for the dignity in that other person. It's really imperative that we do this and it opens so many doors when you do. If I had if I had never done my Two readings of two books of Sarah Palin. I never would have been able to write a book that got Republican and Democratic endorsements, and that I've spent time at both conferences and built built a lot of bridges. Um, because ultimately, each of us needs to be that kind of emissary, and you know, it's to to take the time to to let go of the old grudges, to let go of some of the old biases, to to not rehearse the negative story, but to say, you know what, I want I want to create a political culture that is brings out the best in us. I want to honor our political leaders for their service. I'm going to not just focus on the critiques. I'm going to appreciate whatever I can and to help to have whatever we appreciate expand and, and really blossom into something more beautiful. Mm. Oh, Stephen Dynan, thank you so much for bringing the sacred into this political conversation and into our political culture, I think that that is healing in itself. And and that's a shift for us. You know, we, we've been mm-hmm. conditioned to think, no, can't talk about politics and religion, and we don't mix church and state. And we're really... Yeah, I'm doing both, politics and religion, just bang, bang, put them together. <laughs> <laughs> Amen. I love it. I love it. And, and I'm really so happy that I had this opportunity to talk to you about it today and, and really bring it to our listeners. So thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. It's been, it's been a lot of fun. Mm, thank much you. Love yeah. And good luck with the book. I hope you're handing out books at both of those conventions and, and really um, getting the word out there. So thank you. I'm going to help continue to get sacred America, sacred world out in all of my different venues here. And I really, really appreciate you. So we've been talking with steam at Stephen Dynan author of Sacred America, Sacred World. You might know him from the Shift Network. So um, again, go to thedrjulieshow.com. You can find the archive and share it with your friends. So remember, listeners, together, we create connections for the greater good of the whole. Until next time, I'm sending you a world of love. Bye for now. <laughs> 